It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Ben Halligan. Welcome to the show. Hello to you. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about Michael Reeves. You are all of you confessed idolaters. However, these proceedings shall be carried out through due process of law. What law demands, we shall satisfy. This will be the second time Michael Reeves has got the floor because on the podcast I've had um, I've had Dima Balling on talking about his movie Magnificent Obsession of Michael Reeves is basically a product of what became known as the Angry Young Men movement. And today I have Ben on, who is the author of a book all about Michael Reeves. Before we go into why you'd write a Michael Reeves book, let's tell people what you do first as a kind of, um, as a profession. I'm an I'm a academic. Um, I specialise in people who are researching PhDs across all disciplines. Um, I work for the University of Wolverhampton. I'm director of a doctoral college. Um, but I'm also, you know, writing a lot about cinema, about music, critical theory, um, I'm writing as well a lot about um, 1968. My last book was called Desires for Reality, and it was about radical cinema of 1968. My next book is is looking at British pornography from roughly the summer of love to the arrival of Margaret Thatcher, which was 40 years ago yesterday. So um, I'm slowly tracking forward through the wonderful golden periods of British exploitation cinema. And I think the Michael Reeves book, which was published in 2003, um, and I wrote in the late 90s and early 2000s, was the first ever engagement for me with that interesting, colourful world. What particularly is it about that? I mean, I I know from a big cultural sense, I remember reading about um, Altamont, say, being the end of the dream, you know, Whatever, whatever it was that we were going to get of an equitable society, we proved ourselves to be horrible human beings and that hippie idealism was a, was a complete false flag and we were all going to be conservative bastards. And that's how it's, that's how it's transpired. Yeah, I mean, because that, that's often contrasted to Woodstock. So the, the peace, love and understanding of, of the Woodstock event then transmogrifies into the kind of brutality and the death you know, the Altamont, and also, you know, that's associated with the Manson murders and the kind of the the beautiful dream uh, turning sour, and as well, I suppose, the violence in the um, Democratic Convention in Chicago of 1968. So so in a way, it's the end of um, this great experimental period and the reassertion of the deep roots of the new right, uh, which would then take a decade, and I guess with Thatcher and Reagan would fully break surface. So you had a, a kind of perhaps struggle around a certain lost generation, that generation of the counterculture of hippies of 1968 and fitting them back into society, the baby boomer generation, um, and somehow allowing them to um, maybe bring something of the ideals of 1968 and bring something of new ways of living and thinking but to bring those back into something of the mainstream. Yeah, because the 60s was, was, was clearly a confused period. When, when I think in terms of cinema and films I've covered on the Great British Horror Film series that I've done, you know, Peeping Tom is, is the end of civilization as we know it, whereas Psycho is a cultural phenomenon. 
and you can kind of put a paper between how much time there is between those two films coming out. Peeping Tom was a very interesting insight um, into a certain world of Soho porn mm. that was almost just a few years too early. I think if that film had been made four or five years later, no one really would have would have cared. In fact, many films like that were made four or five years later. But it opened up a whole world um, that I think people simply didn't know existed. And was... Yeah, I must admit, I was shocked. I remember being shocked to learn that one of the most one of the most um, complained about scenes in television during the sixties was for a Coronation Street scene where the camera pans round and a guy's fixing his motorbike in the living room. And Middle England was horrified that someone would do such a thing. So in the, it's kind of the opposite of being getting a look into Soho, getting a look into what the Northern Oaks were up to, was somehow shocking to it, to the great and the good of the country that they complained to the broadcasting standards. They had the, they had the same problem, didn't they, with Happy Days, that um, the Fonz was unless this is an urban myth, the Fonz was only allowed to wear his leather jacket if it was understood that he was wearing it to ride his motorbike. So if the motorbike was in the room, the Fonz was allowed a leather jacket. If the bike wasn't, then he was a delinquent punk and he wouldn't be allowed on TV. So there was a series of happy days where you only ever see the Fonz <laughs> at the same time as you see wow, his bike. Wow, that's semiotics to, 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 like I'd never thought of. <laughs> There was a, obviously, I mean, there's a parallel with you know what were called white coasters, um, whereby you'd have a film that was basically pornography, um, but every now and then it would cut back to a doctor, or probably not a doctor, just some bloke in a white coat who would who would give you a quite tedious lecture about um, you know young couples' problems or what have you, and then it would just cut straight back to a, a swingers' party. I'm thinking of a film like The Wife Swappers, for example. So yeah, it was a semiotic justification in a way of um, exploitation. For that period in, in in time to sort of fire your imagination and enthusiasm to write not not only one book but but then to go back and go right okay I'll pick the baton up from where that one finishes and and crack on with another cultural phenomena. What 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 what's what before we get I mean maybe this is something to talk about while we talk about the films because what what I should say to the listener is we're going to do we're going to use the five great British um, horror films format. And apply it to five Michael Reeves movies, one of which we're going to sort of sneak under the radar as an assistant director. But I don't care. I think it's. Uh, I think. I think with such a short, sharp career as as Michael uh, had, I think it's worth sort of covering it and deferring to your expertise. Having written the book, I think you can obviously paint the picture as to why it's relevant to talk about it. Um, and while doing that format, I'll follow exactly the same thing. At uh, we'll do five minutes, five per film, five films. And when the um, Edgar Broughton band sing, that'll be uh, Ben's cue to move on to the next movie. Does that all seem right to you? That sounds wonderful. What for you was the was was the first sort of look at the rabbit's tail disappearing? You went, oh my god, I've just seen the sight of that, that. That thought I've got to follow that now. And then you're in. What got me started was there was, uh, in about 96, 97, mm -hmm. um, Michael Reeves' films were, were kind of fairly well known and regarded well, but considered to be cult cinema. And there was this question as to what had happened to him. And the only person who had answered that question uh, was Vincent Price, who starred in Witchfinder General. And Vincent Price had said things that, you know, weren't true, that he... Um, had committed suicide. He was this sort of lunatic, um, his own worst enemy. We all tried to help him, but, you know, it was too terrible, it was too sad, he topped himself. Mm. This was in February 1969. At the same time, the films, especially Witchfinder, had, you know, this incredible darkness that that film ends with sort of murder and madness. So one relates those two things quite closely together. But in trying to read more about Michael Reeves or find out a bit more information, there really was nothing out there at all. And at that point, I, I guess I, without realizing it, I began to do the research that was preparing to feed into this book that was then published a few years later. So I think it was this story of, of what had happened to him. And, and he was someone who had also delivered very, very good British horror movies. And I was aware of how very, very bad some British horror movies had then become immediately after his death. And I think especially a film 
um, called Dracula AD 1972. And I remember that as being maybe the lowest point ever of, of Hammer. And I remember speaking to Christopher Lee about this, and um, he was very annoyed about this film. And he said that the, he'd been cast even without his, um, his knowing. And when, when uh, Christopher Lee objected uh, to this, the producer said, listen, if, you, if you're not in this, I'm going to have to fire these 30 people, which includes friends of yours. And we're going to have to shut down this, and it will cost this person their job. And at that point, what could he do? Because you know, he was a very nice fellow, and um, he agreed to be in it, but he, he felt it was a low point in his career. So anyhow, so he, uh, he represented in that film something of the tailing off of the golden period of British horror. Right. And with the figure of Michael Reeves, I guess you could think something more could have happened, you know? I think te- pick, if, if that's the kind of feathering off of, of the sort of the long tail of descent, um, I think from podcasts I've done with people, I think the Nadir is the ghoul in 1976. <laughs> yeah. I think that's where it kind of goes. I think it just gives up the ghost at that point. You go, let's just not bother. I think it takes that, yeah. until about Hellraiser <laughs> in 87 for us to even consider that we could make horror films again. I yeah, I, I agree. I mean, maybe Inseminoid also deserves some, a special mention. Extra will always have a place in my heart, don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's not a flawless film. You know, I've I've had Mark Forstatter on talking about it with the recent reissue and stuff, but but I know, you know, objectively speaking, there's flaws to that film. But then, you know, it's kind of like the you know when you, when you watch something like Phantasm, you go, well, the narrative doesn't necessarily work, but I'm still enthralled. Well, look, we can talk about all horror all day, every day, but we're gonna we're gonna do your um, we're gonna do your five five great michael reeves moments in cinema so this, this is a michael reeves special it is indeed and um i would i'll recommend and we'll put links in the show notes to the the dima Borland one about the documentary magnificent um obsession of uh, michael reeves which came which came out last year and it has done the round it's been at some film festivals it was at fright fest it was Abattoir, where I talked about it a bit. I was, I'm in it, but I was also the technical consultant for it. I think Dima has done an amazing job because you mentioned already that the story is, is quite short. And also, I know visual material, there isn't too much of it. After um, Mike's mother died, which was after Mike, I think the family disposed of a lot of photographs and bits and pieces. So there, there really isn't very much at all. Dima's told the story with uh, recollections of people who knew him, people like me, um, images, clips, it's all come together and it's very compelling and it, it, it's also added um, you know, like a new dimension which is I think around, maybe we'll talk about this a bit um, the Witchfinder General and something that people have talked about recently, uh, which is folk horror He was a public schoolboy who wanted to make Hollywood movies I remember he told me he decided to be a film director at the age of eight and that was his central of his life Finder is this film along with um the wicker man and blood on satan's claw that is this kind of high point trilogy of british folk horror yeah no you 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 you're second guessing my notes already which is not surprising because that's it's um it's quite amazing actually when when you when you sort of do a bit of a scratch around and you find people writing articles about folk horror spurred spurred on by the success of midsummer so people sort of coming to trying to do being asked to write these think pieces defining what folk horror is and none of it and they and they all miss over skip, uh, skip over the fact that it wasn't even a term people used until the early 2000s and it was um what's he called Piers haggard is believed to be the first one to coin it and he directed blood on saint's claw you're like it's because it because it, it, now it feels like it's been around forever and obviously with kill list and 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 whatnot coming out you know it's sort of it's hard it's hard not to move you know not to move because of it but but it's it's not a term that was when when the film when the film came out followed by blood and Saints claw three years later and then two years later wicker man anyone i mean christ i don't even know whether people thought wicker man was a horror film um in in the true sense of the term back then because it would have you could, I'm guessing people would have argued it's a musical or something. I mean, I suppose at the time, you know, you thought of the countryside as the place to um, to relax. And there was a phrase at the time, which is getting it together in the country, so that when you've had enough of the city, you'd go to the countryside to, to get some sort of psychic um, 
healing that you're looking for. So you, you wouldn't necessarily associate folk, the folk of the countryside or, or the rural domain as something horrific. But then, yeah, as you say, exactly in retrospect, these films come together to, to paint something really quite different and really quite interesting. I mean, there are, there are other films that people don't talk about in relation to this genre or subgenre. Maybe Polanski's Macbeth, um, maybe the, the bizarre documentary Legend of the Witches. Um, there are some other things kicking around uh, that perhaps draw dogs as well. So there's a kind of West Country aspect that could perhaps expand the folk horror genre. The contemporary folk horror is what Carolyn Glover referred to as urban oil, which is mm. which is interesting is the way you phrase that, you know, the, the, the glass half full British version of we go to the countryside to recharge our batteries and then we come back to the city and we crack on. Whereas horror films went, if you come to the rural areas of the world, they're going to resent you because you've ruined their way of life and they'll take their revenge on you. And Carolyn Glover mm. spotted this trend and went, I'm going to call that urban oil. And, you know, the idea that we go to the countryside and it will eat us or kill us or something, you know. <laughs> um, a trope that horror films have played with and played with. Um, and I think it's I think it's a, it's a trope that doesn't work so well in Britain because you're only about 20 miles from anywhere. So the idea of being remote is not, is hard to imagine. Whereas obviously in America, you can imagine arriving in a town and, you can't see it. It's, it's also slightly class-based, isn't it? Because there's a sense that these are the people who've been left behind who weren't swept into the city. So that these these are maybe like the members of your distant family that haven't been successful like you. I've not thought about that way. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, there's a sense of um, the rejects of uh, whatever progress is. So that when you go back to the country, you're sort of going back in time. And, I mean, with and I is very good about this, you know, that when they wind up in their uncle's cottage and then become prey to some local poacher as well as the sexual advances of the uncle who turns up that somehow stuck in some sort of late Georgian period in this cottage in this area where civilization 20th century has not really reached it you know yeah you're not going to get a white collar country bumpkin are you <laughs> well not not many of them there are a few I know the uh, I know that Blur sung a song about he lives in a house and stuff but but I think that idea of escaping to the country um, and then just buying it up and then making it a rich person's place. Let's uh, let's crack on. And we're going to do five Michael Reeves moments and um, three of which are feature films that he's directed. One's a feature film he worked on and one's a short film. And we'll, we'll do them in... Date order, oldest to newest. So we'll start at the oldest, which is 1961 short film Intrusion. In fact, there were a couple of films before that that have been lost in the mists of time. One was called Carrion from 1958, and one was called Down from 1958 as well. And that was shot at Radley College, which is where Mike Reeves went to boarding school. And these were all 8 mil black and white, you know, on a... Uh, shot in the kind of gardens of friends' houses, using a tea service trolley as a dolly, using mates as actors and things like that. And unfortunately, all of these, well, the, these two earlier ones, there may have been even other ones before that, have, have been lost. But Intrusion exists. And when I was researching for the book, uh, Pete Toombs, who directed uh, the late 90s Channel 4 series, Eurotica, that I was in as well, um, said that he had some flashbacks that he once saw that Intrusion had been shown at a US film festival. And it took a lot of work, but I found out where it had been shown, and I was able to source a copy. And somehow a copy was was in the US. And I heard a story that when Mike died, um, Mike's mother, Betty, had invited his friends round to his Chelsea flat and said to them, you know, take a momentum. And I think a lot of films vanished at this point. And then somehow 30 years later, this film had somehow wound up in the US. So I was able to get a copy out of them. So all the copies that circulate now of Intrusion are from me and my copyright breaking, although I don't know who owns it. But Intrusion has uh, Ian Ogilvy in as a butler in a very small role because apparently he had the flu. And what I like about Intrusion is it's just 10 minutes, basically, of violence. 
So there's a the kind of breaking into a house and the, the boyfriend <clears throat> uh, had, has called his girlfriend who's in the house and he, he can tell something's up. So he kind of speeds back in the car. Mike was into cars a lot at this point. Finds out what's going on. There's a fight. Someone gets thrown in the bath. <laughs> the couple are reunited. That's it. And it starts with a lovely shot of the, these two intruders, the burglars, um, running through the snow. I think this is Mike's house. Haplessly trying to get up a, a slight incline at one point. Yeah, exactly. So who else was involved? Paul Vesti, who um, was a friend of Mike's and is now Lord Vesti. Tom Baker was cinematographer on it. Yeah, so Tom Baker, the writer, who went on to, to, to work a lot with Mike, was mm. involved as well, because they were, they were friends as well. And Tom Baker's, I think, girlfriend, Sarah Dunlop, was the girl. Um, and then Michael Reeves is in Can it. I ask you, what in terms it's of the film world. itself, did you, I mean, it was interesting watching it, and given what we talked about earlier in reference to Peeping Tom and Psycho, it's like Michael Reeves, is, it's a re, it feels like a real precursor to what Wes Craven did with Last House on the Left, but it's it's 10 years before it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So suburban karma shattered. I mean, the film's dedicated to Jean-Luc Godard. There isn't much in it that's Godardian, but it shows an awareness of new, younger filmmakers. But to me, it's a lot like a uh, Don Siegel film, The Killers or something like that. And Don Siegel was Mike's, was Mike's master. I mean, this was a guy that, who made Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Mike would write to from prep school um, on a fairly regular basis and, and would occasionally write back. You know, and Don Siegel made Dirty Harry. He worked with Clint Eastwood. He was based in Hollywood. And then years later, Mike just doorstepped him, turned up one day. That's my favourite my favorite, um, anecdote in the film, that, that idea of, hello, it's me, been writing to you. And there were variants of it. One is that he answered the door in a vest. The other was he wasn't in, but his wife was. Mm. And, and they, they chucked Mike in a kind of guest house and to give him some work. They, I think they were having him do voice coaching for extras on some Elvis Presley movie uh, for a week or two, and then off, off he went. Because he was meant to be in the U.S. visiting distant relatives, and he split the minute he got there to, to meet the great Don. How old was Michael when he made this, then? I think he would have been um, in the region of sort of 15, 16. So, so it really is given as an insight into someone that is, as, as, as someone that would be writing to Don Siegel, is... A, a genuine obsessive about film, which is something that comes across clear in the documentary. Yeah, and it's speed, it's action, it's violence, it's revenge, it's suspense, it's, oh. it's cinema. It's cinema from a young Mike Reeves. Not art, but cinema. It did, no, I totally agree with you. It's, and like I say, the fact that it made me think of Last House on the Left as much as anything else um, is testament to it because it's got... There's an, which I guess... I guess if you kind of if you stretch out sort of Don Siegel and Goddard and and get to Wes Craven, you can kind of see where that idea of just the the, the equipment being getting cheaper, getting lighter, the, the 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 what you want to shoot gets to be sort of less formulated, I suppose, for want of expression, more about more about the moment as much as anything else, which um, which obviously a, a home invasion is a is very much about the moment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's the formulation of, um, you know, exploitation cinema, so kind of video nasties in a way grows out of this. And, um, and again, I, I suppose you have a very British class-enforced sense of horror that the home invaders are not you. They're not like you in your nice suburban home, that maybe they're the, the lower classes wreaking revenge. Let's move on to um, Castle of the Living Dead from 1964, which Michael Reeves didn't direct, but he did work on it as the assistant director on second unit. Slowly, relentlessly, destiny ticks off the terrifying minutes of anguish that freeze the blood. The Castle of the Living Dead. In an atmosphere of horror, the story of a man who violates the forbidden frontiers of science to arrive at a frightful but lucid madness and atrocious inhuman crime. So do you want to tell us why you want to flag this up as part of your Michael Reeves um, story stroke obsession? There was a long persistent rumour that Mike Reeves directed it. 
And the the rumour was around the director, um, Warren Kiefer, who had gone off ill one day, leaving the young Mike. So this is only a couple of years after Intrusion, hmm. to take over the reins. And Robin Wood wrote a piece in the early 70s, immediately after Mike Reeves died. And this was for the, the magazine journal. So hmm. the magazine um, movie. And he speculated uh, about this because there were sort of interestingly Baroque grotesque sequences, public executions in Castle of the Living Dead that seem a lot like Reeves's later work. Um, I, I don't know if I ever really got to the bottom of who was doing what, but uh, it seems unlikely that Mike was doing much of anything at that point. I mean, it was shot in Italy and um, it had Christopher Lee in it. Hmm. It had Donald Sutherland in it. I think it was Donald Sutherland's first film. Although I don't think this is something Donald Sutherland talks about a lot. And although, it appara- has although, in the although, although apparently director Warren Kiefer mm. is the reason why Kiefer Sutherland is called Kiefer. Yeah, that's so, I understand so, that to be true. Yeah. So I guess I mean it matter. It's it, it it's not notable in cinemas big big cinemas history, but I suppose to Donald it was important, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it was his um, I guess first leading part. Uh, it's a film about um, this Dracula-like figure played by Christopher Lee who maintains the castle of the living dead which is full of um, waxworks and stuffed real human beings including Mike Reeves and the cameo and there's a person of restricted growth in it who basically blows the gaff there's a lot of running around I can't quite remember the plot, which says a lot about the incoherence of the film. Well, I, th- I think I think it's safe to say, isn't it, that it's it's a kind of best viewed at night, and it's likely to amuse you more than it will ever scare you. I think that's a safe way to summarise it, isn't it? And it's a very mu- it's very much a B movie, and and in a sense, it em- it embraces what horror and genre should be. It isn't. It isn't afraid to be. I think. I think that's the one thing that I understood from the Microwaves documentary, and it's one thing I hate seeing in this day and age is that is where people sort of look down on horror as a genre. Whereas I think Michael Reeves very much celebrated what you could do with horror and what the B movie could be like, as opposed to he wanted to do something bigger and better. This was just a stepping stone. And it, you know, and it uses the the localities in a very interesting way. So, it, you know, part of it shot in a very famous. Um, part of Italy with gardens and castles, all of which are integrated into the interesting look of the film. I mean, it's a midnight movie. And it used to be on a lot in the US in the late 70s on cable TV. So it'd be on at like one, two in the morning and people would be watching it and thinking, what is this? The the reason for that was the producer was this chap, Paul Maslansky, who Reeves then worked with a bit more. And Paul Maslansky uh, went on to produce all the Police Academy films. But every time I've talked to Paul, he remembers his times in Rome, you know, with ever greater fondness and working with people like Mike Reeves and shooting these really cheap horror films like this and the next one. And it was a time when there were lots of British American producers shooting films on the cheap, tiny budgets, uh, collecting whatever subsidies they could get, which is why a lot of the films had different uh, titles and seemed to be directed by Italians with an Italian crew when that wasn't the case, which is why they all have italicized names. And consequently, uh, it's just a film of, of that period. I mean, it's really atmospheric as well. I mean, there's something quite still about it and there's something that really sucks you into it. And I could imagine watching on cable TV in the kind of wreckage of New York of the late 1970s in the middle of the kind of punk explosion, you would have thought, yeah, this is... This is a film that really speaks to the subculture. But know? I guess, I guess as well, in by 1964, we've we be, to call something a B movie is is obviously just is is a literal thing, isn't it? It's like there's an A movie and a B movie. <laughs> Whereas I think now, when we call it a B movie, a B a, a B movie, we're saying we're we we we're giving it a postmodern slant, aren't we? We're 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 saying there's a lot to be had by it, but don't expect gloss. There we go, that's uh, our five minutes are up. A film that probably not many people have seen, but it's certainly a debut feature film for Michael Reeves, is um, Revenge of the Blood Beast from 1966, which is, is it also called She-Beast? 
Yeah, it's got a load of titles. The She-Beast was the US title. Vardella uh, was a working title. Il Lago di Satana, the late, Lake of Satan. Um, uh, the Sister of Satan, also in Italy. Also, uh, it was actually shot under the title Etruscan Ruins. So they claimed they were making an archaeological documentary. The She-Beast. Deadlier than Dracula. Wilder than the werewolf. More frightening than Frankenstein. Another victim of a strange revenge. Wreaked on the innocent from beyond the grave. Hurling a town into a terrifying struggle against the powers of darkness. The witch Verdella, known to be dead for centuries, comes to blood-chilling life before disbelieving eyes, unleashing all manner of monstrous evil in the town in which she was supposed to have breathed her last. You'll see a creature of the damned damning the living to destruction. Now, this is this is the story of a newlywed English tourist and an eccentric Transylvanian count. They must work together when a farmer, the farmer's beautiful wife, is made the bodily host of a horrific witch. I mean, that's that's a good story. It's it's just it's just a very everyday story, isn't With it? With Barbara Steele in the lead and and uh, Michael Reeves' friend um, Ian Ogilvy getting his getting his, his debut feature as well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. It might have been. In your research, what did you find out about the writing of it? Because I was fascinated by the different credits. Um, you've got Michael Reeve as one of them, but then you've got the legendary screenwriter Charles B. Griffiths of Little Shop of Horrors fame, amongst many things, as one of the writers. Then you've got um, an actor-cum-writer best known for playing the flower shop owner in said Little Shop of Horrors, Mel Wells. And you've also got F. Amos Powell, who um, wrote curse of the stone hand in 65 which is a, a sort of another sort of b movie from the time um do you know anything about the provenance of michael reeves writing this script because all those three i mentioned are all uncredited but they you know now imd imdb exists that the, the, the world tells us that they, they were had a hand in it yeah so the script is technically credited to someone who doesn't exist called michael byron that's um, right mike turned up with uh, a, a suitcase of money in italy and Paul Maslansky agreed to produce the film. And Mike said, I've got half the budget. But to Paul's, to Paul's amazement, when you say that, you kind of mean here's, you know, a bank account with the money, and you don't mean here's a suitcase. I've just taken through customs <laughs> with all the money. <laughs> so I think they wanted to make a film more than they had a script ready. So I think it was, you had, you had the basic story, but you actually also had Barbara Steele, but only for a very limited period of time. I think they had her for 24 hours. So when she turns into a monster, um, they could film the monster without having to film Barbara Steele. It was somebody else who was in there, who was this guy called Jay Riley, who was a US dancer who toured a show that I think was called Gospels or Trumpets of the Lord, Trumpets <laughs> of the Gospel, something like that. And he would get dressed up in the Vardella costume and then would leap out at cars as they came down the road in between shoots just to see what would happen. Uh, so basically, I think they kind of winged it. And Chuck Griffiths, who worked with Roger Corman, and Mel Wells, who directed uh, a number of films. Yeah, himself. sorry, I should have said, yeah, there was the, the, the Roger Corman's the other thread in this, which is kind of nice in a B-movie sense. And, and those two were just kicking around Italy, and we're happy to get the work. Um, F.A. Mospal is a bit more of a mysterious figure to me. I'm not quite sure what he was up to. Um, I, the, only st the only story I could find out about him was that he'd run out of money and he'd taken a gun into a bank and killed himself uh, in, in the bank um, to, to show how uh, annoyed he was with the bank's attitude towards his financial situation. I think that was in the early 80s. But I, I'm not quite sure beyond that. What truth is there in the idea that they, make, they basically got, they flogged Barbara Steele for 18 hours on set in that one day they had with her? Yeah, I think that's true, yeah. And because, uh, I mean, she was in Rome... At that point, she was in Fellini's Otto and Mezzo, eight and a half. Um, she probably thought it was just some sort of one-day gig on the side. 
So they used it for every minute they had. I mean, Mike did the same with Vincent Price when at the very end of Witchfinder General, they did endless setups in one night, mm. which is the bit where they kind of execute, uh, well, they, they kind of kill the Witchfinder at the end. Um, so they Mike would use every minute of paid time of these stars. I mean, obviously, you know, she features a lot on the poster and she's the kind of other half of the young couple. So it's Tyranny and Ogilvy and um, she's the star attraction and the star draw. And, you know, she had that wonderful look at that point mm, um, that we know from Bava as well. And this very European, kind of almost middle European, gothic, dark sense of you know this dangerous star in the middle of it so yeah a very interesting character and and uh, i mean it's one i've not seen so um i was i was reading about a given given the the rush to get this made and the lack of writing involved therein it talks about a hammer and a sickle being used in a kind of kill scene as a comment on Romania's want to come out, Romania being Transylvania and Romania's want to come out of the Soviet Union. And it's some sort of satire within the film. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, everybody I ever talked to claimed that they were the. Um... <laughs> finish, that, finish that thought, please, Ben, because I need. I, I really do. Everyone use... I ever talked to claimed that they were the originator of that joke, where like a hammer is thrown on a sickle, so it's like a kind of Soviet sign. Where that actually came from, who knows? <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a naff joke. But it does appear in the film, though. Yeah, it appears in the film, yeah. I mean, you've got the combination of sex, violence, and humour. I mean, no wonder the British censors cut it, because I mean, those three things shouldn't go together in the mind of John Trevelyan, who was then head of the British Board of Film Censors. Did he go Did he go to, to town on it? Yeah, well, they, they snip bits out of it, as, as one would expect in 1966. He was actually a distant relative of Mike Reeves, but... Um, John Trevelyan's uh, engagement with Reeves, I don't think necessarily was a happy one because he was also behind the cutting of Witchfinder General. And indeed behind the, the cutting of the Sorcerers as well. Would going off shooting a film in Italy sort of circumvent any pre-censorship that might have gone on for a production in Britain? I think they probably at this point um, were shooting continental versions. So there would be a version with more nudity and more violence, which would be cut and released in sort of West Germany and Italy. Mm. And, it, you know, the distributors were Cineris, who were, were Italian. I mean, it was Fellini's company. Um, and AIP in the US, so it would have been in the drive-in market, mm. where you could have had a little bit more violence. But it was released by Miracle Films in the UK. And Miracle Films was associated, I think, with Tony Tensor. So it was associated with his stable of female strippers. <laughs> that point and i think it was on in um somewhere like hendon as a as a b feature and mm. that was it but it was on for weeks and weeks on end and mike reeves would take people to the cinema and then he would give them something that we would now recognize as a dvd commentary he would talk to them across the film various jokes and anecdotes about what happened oh fantastic and yeah, so that sounds like a kind of fun afternoon. And then it was on with them, and then it sort of vanished. And the the print was uh, held in a lab in Italy where the company had been sold several times, and a lot of money was, was owed. And um, so until, I think, maybe 15 years ago, it, the film only existed in horrible panned and scan versions. The actual negative was was beyond reach. But since then, it's been given a, you know, a better release. Well, let's 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 hop skip into 1967, uh, where we'll find an aging hypnotist has created a device that allows the user to control the mind of another person. But, and there's always a book with a horror film. Um, his wife abuses his its power by manipulating a younger man to commit evil acts. We've got Boris Karloff, we've got Ian Ogilvy again, we've got Tom Baker on the co-writing of the script. So. Um, promoted from cinematographer on intrusion now to key collaborator on the screenplay um do you, do you want to tell us what what it is about what's interesting for you about the sorcerers the sorcerers was a film that um well i mean this is like one of the two michael reeves films um and i say michael reeves rather than mike reeves because he changed from mike to michael as he shifted from revenge of the blood piece to the sorcerers and this was one of two films he shot in 19 67 and um it's a film really about the swinging london as it begins to happen and darker undercurrents and the people involved in this film are really interesting 
I mean, one of the producers was Tony Tenser, who I've mentioned already with Miracle Films. And Tony Tenser was a, a, a interesting kind of exploitation character who was involved with Michael Klinger and the own Compton cameo. So they basically just released a lot of um, sort of softcore European films. And then they started making their own films. And in fact, one of them was Repulsion. They went from exploitation to winning Oscars, to their own amazement, because they were just these two London wide boys. So Tony Tenser produced The Sorcerers with Patrick Curtis, who was the husband and manager of Rackle Welch at that time. And Pat Curtis is still around as well. And he, um, can you believe this? He was in Gone with the Wind. He was the baby in Gone with the Wind. Good Lord. And he's a, I really got a lot from talking to Pat Curtis about that particular moment and that particular time and what a, you know, what an interesting fellow he was turning up with Rackle Welsh and helping shoot the sorcerers. It was shot by Stanley Long, who went on to make a load of um, Adventures of a Plumber's Mate type films. But Stanley Long also shot Half of Repulsion. And he was also uh, a pilot. And then he was... Um, he wrote his autobiography, which came out about 10 years ago. Um, and he was really a mainstay figure in the British exploitation uh, subculture of that moment. I mean, reputedly, he worked with um, Christine Keeler before she was sort of famous um, in, in ways that I, perhaps are, you know, let's not talk about that. So uh, he shot the film and he kind of looked after Mike Reeves as well. So you mentioned Boris Karloff in Ogilvy. Where is my advertisement, young man? What advertisement? The one that should be in the case outside. Where is it? What's it for? My professional services. Oh, so you're the famous Professor Monserrat. Where is the advertisement? Took it down. Didn't seem to interest the public like some of the others. Nobody's paid out for the last couple of weeks either. There's five bob, Owen. How can I conduct my practice without advertising? Tell me that. Like I said, there's five Bob Owen. Also, Susan George was in it. And the executive producer was this guy, Arnold L. Miller, who um, is a character who's not talked about much when people talk about Mike Reeves. But he went on to make uh, Growing Up, which was a notorious documentary that taught uh, teenagers how to masturbate. And this was the film that May Whitehouse uh, as it were, rode into town on the back of, and indeed even managed to rile up the young Margaret Thatcher about. So if there's any film that's important to the formation of the festival of light, evangelical Christian censorious groups, people like May Whitehouse, Jimmy Savile was involved, Cliff Richard was involved, Growing Up, directed by um, Arnold Miller, was the film. Arnold Miller died... Um, some years ago, um, but his legacy of films like London in the Raw, uh, Primitive London, you know, have, have recently become quite popular. And a few months ago, I got a message um, that Arnold Miller's been in touch with uh, people in my circle through a medium. Um, and he had a message for us, which is that basically he's owed money from, <laughs> from these people releasing his films and it needs to be paid into his estate. So uh, that was the message. Although I must say, I've not, I've not, um, nothing's been paid in. So if I die in a mysterious circumstance, you could probably attribute that to some sort of supernatural intervention. What medium is uh, is the relay for this message out of interest? You know, I'm not going to talk about that because it, it's through various people who are still alive, and I wouldn't want to um, say say something that they object. To. You've 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 let the dog see the rabbit, but that's enough. But go on. But if they're, if they're listening to this, I. Tell Arnold, I've heard the message from the other side, and if I ever come across anybody that's profited from primitive London or London in the Raw, and his brave exposés of you know young French strippers in Soho, then I would definitely make sure that money gets to his estate. That's so, very honourable Arnold, of you. Very honourable. That's my message from me to you. Thank you. I, I, I welcome this opportunity to, to send that message. Hey, but the Sorcerers, what a great film! I mean, there's a film that also has a lot of interesting connection to the early Pink Floyd. Um, one of the designers was also lighting Pink Floyd gigs in the UFO club, then was. So we're talking early 1967, we're talking about Sid Barrett era stuff. And there's a psychedelic brainwashing sequence in the film mm. where Boris Karloff brainwashes the young Ian Ogilvy, takes over his mind and then sends him out into swinging London on a kind of murder spree 
theft, God knows what, swimming in the nude, you name it, in order to have these vicarious experiences for the elderly um, Boris Karloff and his wife, who's played by the great Catherine Lacey. Do you think it was a kind of metaphor for LSD? Yeah, I think there was... A, I think there was a sense of what on earth is going on in London at this point. I mean, Mike Reeves liked to walk at night. He was a bit of an insomniac. And the UFO club in various places like Blazers, which is the uh, nightclub he's filmed in at the beginning, those are places he hung out. And I think that he wanted to have a film that reflected something of the kind of youthful London and what they were up to. And for sure, psychedelia, drugs, swinging... I mean, originally the script was called Terror for Kicks, and um, it really is attempting to show that particular London at that crucial moment. I remember reading a Diary of a Teddy Boy, Mimi Scala's book about this period um, in London, and it is—it really is—it—it—it—it it, 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 it really was almost like a secret society, not in a kind of David Icke sense, but in in, in a way that. People didn't have what you would call free time to be going out on a Tuesday night till five in the morning, but the numbers were growing of people that did. And so they were, and I remember in his book, he talks about being at a party in Mayfair and there's gambling going on and Salvador Dali is there. And you're like, <laughs> I want to be in that London. It was, it was a crucial moment. Yeah. And it's a film from the heart of that moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's what it does. I think it communicates you know, I think it communicates that really well. Released only a year later, but um, very, very much commenting on a on a on a on a wholly different period in uh, in British history. Um, is uh, Witchfinder General uh, from 1968? You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Should you then sink, we will know that your confessions are false. If, on the other hand, you are seen to swim or float, then your confessions of witchcraft are proven beyond a doubt in the sight of God, and you will be withdrawn from the water and hanged by the neck. Vincent Price says it himself that it's his finest ever performance, doesn't he? So who am I to argue with him? He, he said that in a kind of... Um maybe i don't know dowing with faint praise i heard a story that because mike reeves and vincent price hated each other's guts uh for reasons maybe we'll go into in a second and they spent an awful lot of time arguing on the set of witchfinder general and mike's problem was that vincent was doing this kind of uh roger corman type over the top performance you know cartoon like and he'd wanted Donald Pleasance for the role. Um, yeah, yeah, not yeah. Someone who was a kind of. Um... I'm guessing. I'm okay, guessing. So, uh, I was going to so say. We... I was going to say. Just so to interrupt. Um, it, so there's two things, isn't there? There's he wanted Vincent Price. Uh, sorry, he wanted Donald Pleasance. Mm -hmm. Which, from what you've understood, does it does did did Vincent Price know this? But also, is it true Vincent Price fell off his horse on the first day, and because Michael Reeves never even inquired as to how he was, he kind of had a cob on. For the rest of the film, which would have been the bigger influence, not wanting Vincent Price or or trying to get a performance out of him by not caring about him. Well, you know, I guess there were three three elements. One was he didn't want him to begin with, so he didn't turn up at the airport Heathrow to meet him. So poor Phil Wonderlove went and was apologetic. And you know, uh, when Vincent arrived, he said, "Take me to your goddamn young genius." Um, the the second thing was it's true he fell off a horse, and as I recall, he claimed that um, he was a you know, very experienced horse riders. So they put them on the horse, you know, bang, there was this pile of uh, clothes next to the horse and the horse was running off. And there was some sort of insurance problem around this. And I think this was very early on in the film. And they were staying in some oldie-worldie um, hotel and the, the people around the hotel had been warned that you've got a posse of actors. So things may be a bit colourful. And the producer, uh, for Wild Love, told me that they sent Vinny back to the hotel and he thought, well, I have a lie down and got into bed. And he was wearing like one of those Victorian 90s, you know, even with a sort of hat and like a big sort of covering the whole body kind of mighty. And he was in this sort of 15th century hotel room. And Phil Wadlove turned up and said, you know, Vincent, I've been on the phone to the insurers, to American International Pictures, and they've asked me to find out 
you know, is the back just bruised or, you know, is it a bit more serious? So, so Vinny kind of leant over the bed and Phil put his hands up under the, under the nighty and was kind of feeling his back. Does it hurt here? A bit further up. And at this point, the, the door opened and it was um, chambermaid who saw what looked like something quite different and screamed and ran out. And the, I guess the third reason for their difference also had a kind of homosexual slapstick undertone, which was that um, I understand um, that Vincent was very keen on the idea of Michael Reeves as somebody he could seduce. And um, the films are funded by American International Pictures. And I, I saw the letter that they had written to the producers about Mike Reeves, and it strongly suggested that he was this young British public school boy. He would uh, very much enjoy the company of Vincent Price and things like this. So everything was set up. And Vincent, I guess, hit on him. Mike, who was kind of asexual, would have been horrified, shrunk from this, and indeed would have seen it as not a serious attitude towards filmmaking. And Mike Reeves was a kind of cinephile hardcore cinephile to a kind of clinical level so i guess some embarrassment around that i mean what do you what do you i mean talking of which this is obviously this is the last feature film he makes so what are we what are we seeing here of promise of a filmmaker or a horror filmmaker at that 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 you see in which fan of general that you know we kind of can only we can only we can only imagine what he might have made after after that, he wanted to dump horror because he never sort of felt he was a horror filmmaker. Mm. And Witchfinder, in a way, isn't really horror. It's sometimes described as a British Western. And it reminds me a lot of Don Siegel's great film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is you see a society collapsing and then you see the psychic damage that does, which it, it sort of wrecks innocence and it turns people to madness and violence and you know, are you, are you describing the lockdown now by the way <laughs> gee whiz yeah, that's what that's what's coming in a few weeks yeah yeah go on sorry so it's like he's trying to show how how tentative civilization can be mm. and mike was therefore a great anti-violence filmmaker so there's an irony that this film was noted by the British Board of Film Censors it was simply too violent and they sharpened their scissors. And there's an irony now that it's seen as this very brutal film because Mike Reeves was trying to show the, the horrendous reality of such brutality, you know, at a time of Vietnam as well. Satan is upon them. Not since Peeping Tom has a film aroused such an outcry about nastiness and gratuitous violence as this, said uh, Monthly Film Bulletin. Alan Bennett laid into it as well at the time, um, and Mike used to proxy David Austin to to kind of attack um, Alan Bennett for his you know his take on the film. You know, Mike, Mike wrote a long when when it was in danger of really being cut to shreds by the British Board of Film Classification. And mm. Mike was on holiday in, in Jamaica, and he wrote a very long letter to John Trevelyan outlining how serious he was in showing um, the truth of the effects of violence in this film. Mm. And the letter I reproduced in its entirety in the book on Mike Reeves because I just felt it was his manifesto of filmmaking, you know. I think it's interesting when we started off before about the the whole the Holy Trinity of folk horror. In a sense, the film the film became more important as the sort of patient zero for folk horror than it did for being Michael Reeves' final film in many senses. Up until like you know mm. your book, and then and then uh, more recently, uh, Dima Bolin's documentary, sort of trying to sort of almost like write that wrong that this is you know it's films are not made as part of anything, are they not? They're made by the filmmaker. You know, it's for it, everybody else can overlay what they want, but ultimately, 
this was the this was this was a promising filmmaker that never got to fulfil that promise, did he? I guess, but I, I argued in the book, uh, though this was written a long time ago because it was published in two thousand and three. So, um, you know, <laughs> that was some years ago. But I, I I said that's true. But then I I argued in the book that maybe he had actually reached the end of what he was going to say, and that whatever was to come afterwards would only have been a reiteration of this you know essential vision of cinema that was purely cinematic and and in the sense of talking with images and of movement and of action and the philosophical impulse behind that which contrasts the beauty of the countryside because the film begins you know with the light forming a cross as it shines through the trees and then you have this sonic dissonance you can hear hammering and it's the gallows being erected and then this you know, the victims are dragged through the villages and hung. And so there's this sort of, you know, fascinating dynamic. And then society collapses in between those things. I mean, had he made further films, what what more would he have said? I suppose, yeah. I mean, it's a bit like that. In many senses, any great artist, there's the, there's the, you spend your life getting ready to make certain things. And then, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to, trying to build up a life that that will justify making more stuff. And he he almost made another film, which was called The Oblong Box, and he he basically somewhere between quitted quitting and being fired because he'd had a you know like a suicide attempt. There was a sort of half-hearted showy suicide attempt just before and was undergoing treatment, so he stepped away from direct, directing that. But his problem with the film was he couldn't fix the script, and the film's not very good, and it would have been, I think, a step back for him to have been involved in something like that. I know period-wise we're, we're talking about a whole different world from the swinging 60s, but but given the controversy it created, and but given it was also fueled by a novelization of the Matthew Hopkins stories, so it wasn't a, a historical novel, it was a you know, it was Wolf Hall, you know, but, but about Matthew Hopkins. But the film itself took on this like role of despite all the historical inaccuracies and exaggerations um it took on this role of being this is what it was like when we had witch finder generals look look at this film as almost like you know this is what cd Sower was like look look at this film you know whereas obviously there's there's truth in that obviously but but uh it's not it's not reality it's just a film and it's kind of lent that term witch finder general to popular culture i mean it's it's that term is used a lot i mean even during, for example, the, the kind of Bill Clinton um, impeachment moment, uh, that term was being applied to people like Kenneth Starr, and it's used nowadays. And it's it's a film as well that's really about that part of Essex and um, the sense of, you know, what's kind of beneath the, the kind of London suburbs is this, you know, brutal history of uh, theological violence and repression and torture. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really shows... a sense of in the best folk horror traditions you know the the horror that lies beneath the the nice ordinary folk that that we would otherwise encounter thank you for taking us through five great michael reeves moments intrusion 1961 the castle of living dead 64 revenge of the blood beast aka she beast for our us listener 1966 um the sorcerers in 67 and of course which fan of general in 68 um, a question I ask documentarians when they come on, um, and I'm probably I'm, I'm guessing I would have asked Dima this, so I'll ask I'll ask you. Given you've you obviously you've gone under the hood and written a book about Michael, um, from what you knew going into the book and what you knew after finishing the book, what was your most what was the most surprising thing you you, you felt you wanted for you personally? Not like what what's the most shocking thing the world's gonna, you know blink twice and go really but for you what was the most surprising thing you learned about Michael writing a book about him that you wouldn't have really appreciated or perceived going into writing that he was um a total cinephile in that even when he was a kid you know 11 12 13 he was writing film reviews for the school magazine um towards the end you know he would watch every film on TV, he would repeatedly see the same films. I mean, he, he lived for cinema, maybe even to an unhealthy degree. Um, I mean, he came from a slightly unusual family background, that he didn't have a father who died quite young and things like this. So cinema really was life for him. Um, and I, I never, I didn't 
realized the extent to which that was was true. So that's one thing I learned. I mean, maybe the other was that I I hope I dispelled Vincent Price's story that he killed himself because he didn't. It was a sort of accidental overdose recorded by the coroner as such from prescription drugs. Um, so maybe I've somewhat righted the story there. And I guess since the book has been published, you know, Mike Reeves' stuff has gone from being, you know, we were talking about this earlier, B-movie, cult, obscure, probably not very good, to considered as British film classics, you know, and you can see that in where they're shown. I mean, they're no longer on Channel 4 at 2 a.m., but they'll be on BBC Two, you know, sort of late evening slots. So I've introduced these films at the um, BFI South Bank and in film festivals all over the place. I was going to say, yeah, Criterion Collection and all kinds of stuff, isn't it? It's It's really held as part of the canon now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's taken a long time, but this this has come. And I think part, okay, so my answer to your question was I actually, in writing the book, discovered the the quality, I think, the enduring quality of, of these films. And then one last thing, you, you, you said at the beginning you, you were in the process of uh, of pulling together a book about the, uh, the halcyon days of 1970s um, exploitation cinema and pornography industry of britain where where are you with that and when 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 do you hope to have a book ready for the world so that that book will be published in 2021 be published by berghain books and it will be called hot beds of licentiousness which is a quote from mary whitehouse she she was complaining about Soho as being a, a, the hotbeds of licentiousness, and I thought this is the title for the book. Please tie a knot in your handkerchief, because I want to do <laughs> five great British porn films. Um, you, you, I feel like you're the expert in waiting to do that. I don't think I've found any great British porn. But great, great. So we're, we can we can play with the semantics of what great means. Yeah, we can. Okay, we can. That's true. Five, 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 not untypical British porn films. But even, even the words British and porn send a shiver down your spine, you know what I mean? They do, they do. It's a, it, it, in, the, in the olden days, it's sort of, it's, a, it's akin to British and cuisine, isn't it? It is. But, you know, all, all, of, these, all of these connections are still there. I mean, you know, the, uh, you've talked a bit about Peeping Tom, and we're, we're immersing ourselves in that world and this film of what was really going on in Soho. We've talked a bit about Kristen Keeler, who was somebody who also blew the lid on some of that. Stanley Long, I've talked about, he was involved in shooting quite a bit of this, as was Arnold Miller. Um, so it's an immersion into um, this unknown, semi-forgotten period. Um, and Harrison Marks maybe is the filmmaker that I would edge towards great British porn filmmaker. But he was he was quite drunk. Often he was semi-comatose when the film was being shot. So I don't know whether that makes him a director. <laughs> but when you talk about those those periods though, I mean if you I mean what years get Carter? 71? Well we're talking about maybe this is this is my timeline, the summer of love. Then so we're talking 67, 68, then that rolls out into the suburbs. So by 73 or 74, you've got like myths of wife-swapping parties, of board housewives and things like that. Then there's a backlash around the Festival of Light. And then you have the introduction of video, which changes distribution practices massively. Old porn cinema film clubs are shut down. Police begin to lose control. And then with Thatcher in power, the kind of backlash, the moral majority censorship video nasties the end of that period altogether look you're spoiling it for the for the when we when we when we promote your book but anyway it's a nice teaser um <laughs> tease being a good word uh, in the in the context it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the britflix podcast oh thanks it's been really good to talk
Michael Reeves is basically a product of what became known as the Angry Young Men movement. He was very, very troubled, inward looking, didn't sleep well. The point is, I'm bored through black and bloody indigo. He was someone who was so immersed in films that he understood, I think, instinctively how to communicate with images. Witchfinder General was a scandal, and it was even mentioned in Parliament. British film needed somebody like Michael Reeves. He was a public schoolboy who wanted to make Hollywood movies. I remember he told me he'd decided to be a film director at the age of eight, and that was his central core of his life. It was fairly intense shooting a Michael movie. You just got on with it. All of Michael's career was, what, 10 years maximum? He achieved a lot in that tiny little span. His reputation rests on the two films he shot during 1967. He was exciting and innovative and looking at cinema in a completely different way to a lot of the British filmmakers of the period. He was an obsessive watcher of films. He really was very, very good at what he did. He wanted to prove himself. All that mattered was film. Yeah.